Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Hugh Millen, guy who grew up in the Seattle area, went to college at Washington, the third round pick in the NFL draft. Played uh, with a bunch of NFL teams. I could list them all, but I, uh, Hugh Millen, I'd, I'd rather just have you talk about your expertise. Like, give me an idea. What has it been like in Seattle with Kalen DeBoer leaving and Jed Fish coming in? What's that been like? Well, it's been a real shock. I mean, when you consider uh, the, here, the Huskies were, uh, you know, in, in in the national title game, obviously, and and felt like there might be, despite the underdog status, a, a legitimate opportunity to win that. And then all of a sudden, the bottom falls out on that, and then. Next scene, Kalen DeBoer is gone. It was a real, uh, you know, punch in the gut and then a kick in the groin uh, back to back. And and so it, very difficult. I think a lot of Husky fans are, are understanding that it's Alabama, that Washington is not the mecca of the college football world. And I think are a little bit more reasoned in it. I think there's a lot of fans that are very emotional and it's kind of like, uh, to hell with Kalen DeBoer, um, screw him, and and that type of thing, and, and it, it's kind of an emotional response. But but certainly for a large part of the fan base, uh, emotions are raw. Yeah, DeBoer, you know, he goes to Alabama, and I, I think Nick Saban probably looks at NIL and says, you know, this this world and this job isn't what it used to be. But does does Kalen win wherever he goes? I mean, he has that's what he's done his whole career. Does he win at Alabama? Do do the do the Tide fans end up? thinking he's the second coming to Nick Saban. Here's what I think is going to happen. Now, I am not among the Husky fans rooting against Kalen DeBoer. I, I, that's two negatives. I'm rooting for Kalen DeBoer at Alabama because I think he's a good human being and a good coach. But I'm, I'm very skeptical about what's going to happen for the following reason. You have Nick Saban was at Alabama for 17 years. He played in nine championship games, either BCS or college football playoffs. That's obviously greater than one every two years. He won six. That's obviously greater than one every three years. So now you've got the portal and everything changes. I mean, the, the, the depth that he had, the special teams that he had, the fact that, that all the players that could have been on other teams trying to beat him were actually on his bench – because uh, he just kind of corralled everybody, I think everything changed. You know, he could be a real red ass type of a uh, a coach. As as these guys come in as a freshman, it's a big splash of, of cold water in their face, and they probably felt like they wanted to quit. But in the old days, they couldn't, and they tough it out. And then the grit made them better players a year or two later. Now, if they don't like what transpires after their freshman year, they can just get up and go. And so I would submit to you this, John, that if Alabama had a magic closet and 72-year-old Nick Saban could walk into that closet, close the door, poof, out walks 55-year-old Nick Saban with all that energy, but he's now in 2024. There's no way he's duplicating what he did at Alabama in those 17 years because of these reasons. And so I, I don't think a young Saban could do it. I don't think uh, a young Bear Bryant could do it. I don't think that Kalen De- DeBoer could do it. But I, what I would anticipate 
is that the Alabama fans won't think it through that way. I think they'll get emotional as well, and I think they'll get edgy about losing their edge. And I think they'll say, wait a minute, we can't have a, a new crop of, of recruits coming in that can't remember Alabama's dominance. Heck, these guys were in middle school, and they'll they'll get they'll get hasty. And I I got a feeling that it's it's an almost impossible task for Kalen DeBoer. Yeah, I think uh, it's you're Frank Sinatra Jr. Right? You're you're following Nick Saban, and then the stage and the lighting has changed, and uh, you know the the world, the industry has changed around you. Hugh Millen is our guest, uh, former NFL quarterback, former Washington quarterback. Um, you've been through this both, you know, you're an analyst now on KJR in Seattle, but, you know, you've been through it as a player where you have bounced around and been at different programs, different franchises. You, you've watched your kids, your own kids, uh, navigate transfer portal and the shifting dynamic in college sports. Kale and Clay, your uh, quarterback kids. Like, give me an idea of what that's been like for you as a, as a parent. Well, you know, I think you go in as a parent and, and you, you kind of have uh, hopes and dreams along with the kids. And, and then, you know, my uh, oldest kid went to Oregon and had uh, sur- surgery on his shoulder, took three inches out of his collarbone on his throwing shoulder, and, and things were never really the same. So so that kind of uh, out of my youngest son uh, was at Colorado State, started as a redshirt freshman and, and did some good things, set an NCAA for completion percentage, um, uh, and actually edged out Bo Nix that year, so he led the nation in completion percentage, and, and also led the nation in completion percentage on on passes over twenty yards uh, from the line of scrimmage. So it wasn't just dink and dunk. But then, you know, uh, things went awry, and the first game got hurt, and never got his job back. So so now he's at Florida uh, on a full ride. So you know, I, I never wanted to be you know that family, that dad, those kids. Um, bouncing around but it's a new uh it's a new uh, age and i will just say this i think a lot of old-time fans they kind of decry the modern player oh well he, he doesn't have loyalty he doesn't have grit i will submit to you this when i played at washington and i came in um i knew the path to the field i had to beat out chris chandler who they didn't have stars back then but he's a parade all-american and he was he had the equivalent of a, of five stars I knew that all I had to focus on is I got to beat out Chris Chandler and I was going to follow Steve Fleur as the Pac-10 player of the year and what have you. My focus was on only the Washington quarterbacks on the roster at that time and anybody incoming Washington. Don James also, he could, he, there was no portal for him. He had to tell his staff, listen, we better identify and, and target and recruit and land and develop these quarterbacks because on average, we're going to have to start with a new guy every other year, every other year. And so uh, so the, the, the coaches couldn't dip into the portal. So all the reps that my son was promised by Mario Cristobal, they, they then went to, uh, to, you know, they said, hey, hey, uh, after Justin uh, Herbert goes to the NFL, you know, you'll compete uh, with Tyler Shuck and, and any income freshman. They didn't mention – they're going to go bring somebody in the portal. Well, next scene is is now you've got um, uh, Herbert, of course, goes to the NFL, and Anthony Brown comes in, what, he had 45 starts or something in the ACC? They don't, they don't tell you that when you're recruiting. So I, I think let's just, if, if you want to condemn the system, you want to hate the player, uh, you know, and not the game, at least apply it consistently because while the players may have changed – so have the coaches. 
and they are dabbling in in the uh, in the portal. And and I'll I'll just close with the thought with with this analogy. You remember you remember Rambo. The first Rambo movie was First Blood, and there's that famous line where Rambo says, "No, they drew First Blood." Well, who drew First Blood in the in the portal? It wasn't my kid. It was the Duck coaching staff going to get a guy in the portal, and then the response thereafter was, all the reps you promised me in the recruiting trail went to somebody in the portal. So it was the coaches, and so often, not just in my kid, just think about across the country, across the uh, the coast up and down. So oftentimes it's the, the coaches that are they are drawing first blood in the portal to carry out the announcement. Yeah, and I think it's really hard because you have coaches who preach loyalty, and then look at the college football playoff. You know, the three of the four teams that participated in the playoff don't have their head coaches. They're not around. And now you have players going, wait, what? My coach is leaving? And then you have other cases, like you mentioned there, where, you know, your kid gets promised playing time or reps or an opportunity. And then they look up and the calculus has changed all of a sudden. It's, I mean, it's got to be a really bad feeling. I can't imagine, you know, for players who are amid that and you know Oregon quarterbacks it seems like Oregon just wants to go to the portal every year you and now just bring in a you know a guy who's 25 years old every year and I get it that you got an older quarterback in there what do you make of that philosophy like development of a quarterback versus just jumping in the portal and taking somebody else's guy well the one thing I'll say John in there and I agree with that thing I I, I do need to pause I, I I don't think often they they promise you playing time I think now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, my kids were never uh, promised playing time on the field, uh, but they are promised reps in practice, uh, which are which are you know, yeah. you know that's the that's the path to the field. So I I do want to make that distinction. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, I, I think it's very uh, alarming and the uh, the loyalty, as you said. I mean, take Ty Thompson. Is he not regarded as the highest? quarterback recruit in the history of Oregon football I mean uh, and then he just be, keeps being supplanted by guys that that uh, that have the experience I mean I it was a little bit um, of an eye-opener for me when at Northwestern you got the uh, uh, Pat Fitzgerald Pat Fitzgerald was the head of the AFCA and and he sat there and he promises hey we don't take transfers and then if you look at the re- the history this guy is one of the most straight up guys that that I've ever encountered, in le- at least in terms of of uh, initial impressions, and and he went three straight years going to get, as you just said, veterans in the portal, and uh, and and then it's the younger quarterbacks that are holding the bag and say, well, we can't go with you because you don't have an experience. Well, I don't have any experience because you keep you keep trumping me with guys that are experienced. So so I would think that the fallout's going to be. That you're going to get a lesser caliber of quarterback from the high school ranks if you get a reputation as as a school that just you know they they, they just want to have experienced guys. Well, you're just not going to get an elite caliber quarterback coming out of high school. Now, maybe that doesn't matter to guys anymore, but I think that's going to be one of the uh, inevitable consequences. Hugh Millen with us. Uh, you can catch him as an analyst on KJR's coverage. Uh, former NFL quarterback and former Washington quarterback as well. Jed Fish, uh, he uh, takes over at Washington. Small sample size concerns me, Hugh. Um, I think he's a smart offensive guy, but I'm a little leery that he's going to be able to step in there and have the success he had at Arizona. 
certainly right away and certainly with the transition to the Big Ten. Well, I went through a few coaching changes in my my career in the NFL, and here's a, a, a potential concern here. Kalen DeBoer, uh, he leaves, and now if you compare what Jed Fish arrived at at Arizona, that was after the COVID year, the, the, uh, the Wildcats had gone 0-5. They lost the, to Arizona State the last game in Kevin Sublin's career there, 70-7. to So now what's the climate that Fish enters? He's got a, a, a player base that, that A, had played kind of like a, a Big Sky team, not even a Mountain West team. They were dreadful, right? And so they're just thirsting, like like in the desert, uh, coincidentally, in, in the desert thirsting for, for a win. Well, in comes Fish. doesn't matter how abrasive he is or what kind of discipline he instills. These guys just want to win. Well, now you have a guy in Kalen DeBoer, universally and uh, uh, just beloved by those players at Washington, had that rare ability to to be, uh, I wouldn't call him a player's coach because I think that could be a pejorative in some people's mind, but I think that he had a way of connecting with the players, yet still having the discipline. He was respected for his knowledge, uh, the staff. There was a, a respect level. And now Jed Fish comes in here, and it's like like the players are thinking even possibly subconsciously, Hey, dude, this stuff ain't broken. We were fourteen and one. What do you mean you need to put a new stamp on? I mean, and and, and so I think it could be difficult when they see a contrast in styles. And I think it, even as I said, just psychologically, it's a tougher uh, transition. Um, and so, Fish, look, he's a, he's a bright guy, works hard. Um, even his detractors will concede that. So. He may figure this out, but but don't kid yourself. The, it's a 180-degree different environment at Washington than than the one he overtook at Arizona. Uh, Hugh, before I cut you loose, uh, Justin Herbert is getting Jim Harbaugh as his new head coach, and I'm, I was thinking about this. It's now, you know, since he was a freshman at Oregon, six head coaches that he's had, three at three in college, now three in the NFL. You've played at both levels. Yeah, you know, what does that do to a young QB who's trying to make his way or a quarterback who's trying to make his way? And it, will Harbaugh and Herbert be a success? Well, first of all, I could not uh, speak more glowingly about Justin Herbert. I mean, he took my son under his wing. They, they would watch tape together just one-on-one. Uh, from time to time, he would say, hey, today we're not um, I'm watching football tape. We're going to the library and we're going to study together. Incredible mentor, uh, incredibly selfless human being. Uh, everything you think you might think that's good in him is genuine and authentic. Uh, my kid roomed with his uh, with Patrick Herbert, Justin's younger brother. So, so because he's, they were friends, he was constantly at the Herbert house for Monday night football or Thanksgiving dinner and what have you. So, so I, I just cannot uh, bark enough about um, uh, about Justin Herbert, the person. He's a very bright guy, as you know. He won the academic Heisman. He can handle the load of these new offenses. I think the stability with Harbaugh. Harbaugh brings incredible uh, uh, credibility into that locker, into that Charger locker, uh, because it's not just that he won the national title. And I was with the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys. When Jimmy Johnson, Jimmy Johnson had won the the uh, national title, and so if you if you achieve enough at the highest level in college, you still get that respect, in my opinion, in an NFL locker. I think the Chargers will have that, 
and of course they'll know um, the success he had in the NFL as well. Uh, unlike the Jimmy Johnson analogy, uh, analogy I just referenced, so so I think everything the table is set for success. This is a guy in Harbaugh that's never lost. Just look up the University of San Diego, what they did for 25 years before Harbaugh got there, and what what Stanford was before they got there with Buddy Tevens and Walt Harris and all these guys. Like he has he has taken moribund franchises and programs. They always turn on. He always wins. And so I'm, I, I couldn't be more delighted for Justin Herbert. I think it's going to win. Uh, Harbaugh's quirky. There's no question. Um, <laughs> but uh, quirky, quirky in, in, in a way that just produces um, W's and championships. So uh, I, I'm delighted for Justin. I hope it works out the way I think it will. Yeah, and I keep thinking, too, like, you know, he went through this in college. Now he's had three coaches in the NFL. For some QBs, that might be shock to them if they had one guy in college. But – Herbert's lived this. I mean, he went from Helfrich to Taggart to Cristobal. Cristobal had that offense in a straitjacket, as you know. And, uh, yes, he, yes, he did. Yeah, and now that's in a the good, that's a good that's a good description. Oh, yeah. good lord! He wanted to run on first down, run on second down, run on third down if he could. If not, Justin, complete that third and eight and get us the first down. And then we'll start over. Exactly. You know. Well, and even if you look at the passing numbers, so many of those what what became passes were RPOs. They were called run plays with just a quick slant or a, a bubble screen attached to it. So his passing numbers really don't reflect how many times did they just call a drop back or a play action on first down. Uh, in my opinion, not nearly enough. I think it was hard to play quarterback for the Ducks back then. He was a great one, and I, I'm not sure they'd realize their their potential in, in with that system. Hugh Millen, you're the best. I appreciate you joining us. I'd love to get you back on. You know, as uh, the summer and spring happen, and uh, and and draw on your expertise. Anytime, Johnny. I always enjoy our visits. Take right. care now. Thanks, Hugh. Appreciate you, man. Okay, you bet. There you have it, Duck fan, Hugh Millen. Fantastic interview with uh, a Washington legend and a guy that uh, played in the NFL at a high level. Certainly, uh, for those of you who know him and know his college career, love having him on. All right, leave it here. Still ahead at 5 o'clock, Anna will have the 5 at 5. You got the bald-faced truth on the BFT Radio Network. Good stuff from Hugh Millen. Is he a little salty, Stephen? Yeah, you could say a little salty. Uh, maybe a lot salty <laughs> with how things he's, went. He's outspoken, though. I like him. Uh, I have always liked you. He will call me once in a while. And uh, and I said to him, you want to come on the show? And he's like, yeah, because he was venting a little bit about, you know, coaching and how, how, you know, everybody gets on the players for getting in the portal. And he's right. He was right. It's not just the players. The coaches um, were in the portal before players. Like, we remember that, right? Like, coaches used to jump around. It's part of the reason why the portal became a thing. And coaches used to jump around and they would recruit players and then players were stuck playing for the school and having to stay at the school. It's going to blow people's minds someday. Can you imagine, Stephen, like you're going to like your kids are going to be talking someday and you're going to be like, "Well, you you didn't always have the option. It used to be when you committed to a school, if you transferred, you had to sit out a year." Well, that's that's how it was at the start of the year when the Ducks played uh, Texas Tech and Tyler Shuck, me and Judah were looking to be like, how many former Ducks have the Ducks actually played against? And like we couldn't, we couldn't find a lot of Ducks that had transferred and then faced off against Oregon later on in their career. Where now that's going to be the norm in a lot of situations. It's like club sports in a way, right? Like you know, kids will jump around, play for different clubs. 
um, have different experiences. We've talked about that the other day. I don't want to. I don't want to spend like a lot of time bagging on club sports because I think there are a lot of good people who are out there coaching kids and working with kids. And you know, our our nine year old is picking up some basketball and she's getting training sessions. That's great. She's feeling good about it. But there are some adults who have exploited the club system to their benefit, turned it into a job, turned it into a cottage industry. When you talk about the industry that is youth sports, it blows my mind. Um, When you talk about youth sports as an industry, uh, the scope of it is like when you try to wrap your head around it, like the, 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 the market for youth sports in our country, they're saying, it's twenty. It's thirty-seven billion dollars is spent on youth sports. By twenty thirty, in the United States, they are estimating that that number will be almost seventy billion. Seventy billion dollars. Now, how big a business is it? Well, sixty million kids participate in youth sports, and you talk about it. You know, people. People thought, oh, this, you know, youth sports, it's for the good of the kids. It's for the betterment of children. And it's true. This was um, just a couple of years ago, a $19 billion industry. Now it's $37 billion, projected to go to $70 billion, And then uh, by 2030, more than $70 billion. And so even when you talk about organized, I'm talking about U.S., United States, Organized sports for children and teenagers. Like, the NFL is a 15 to $18 billion enterprise. Youth sports will be a $70 billion enterprise by 2030. So the adults out there who have honed in on that, they're not dumb. They've figured out there's business, there's money to be made, and that's fine. I'm okay with people... Um, you know, being paid for their time. Like, who could be against that? Their time and their expertise. But studies show that the average family spends $1,400 a year on sports activities per kid. And I'm going to guess there are some parents listening to this show who go, that's all? Because they're spending more. And, you know, we're talking about, like, there are a lot of benefits to sports. Get your kid away from the screen. Get them out on a field. Kids who play sports, um, uh, you know, have better behavior, better school grades, uh, are less likely uh, to uh, be in unwanted uh, pregnancies and and in trouble with the, the with the law or behavior. And so, there's a lot of good things that come out of sports, but there are some bad things that come out of it in overuse and some coaches out there that you know are trying to wring every dollar they can out of every kid that they can find. That's part of it. Now, I would also argue that there's there's benefit to the local economy because I've seen it. These teams are traveling, which means hotels and restaurants, um, hotel and city taxes, tra- you know, airline fees. Uh, you know, we're talking about these sports complexes that host tournaments that bring people from all over. There's a lot of profit to be made, and I guess maybe I'm asking too much to say, hey, can we do it within reason? I think maybe I'm a little Pollyanna as I start to think about this. I start thinking like, hey, the NFL is worth like 15 or 20 billion. 
Youth sports as an industry, thirty billion, going to seventy billion by twenty thirty. Think, wrap your head around that. This is bigger than the NFL, Stephen. Why are we not talking about this more? I don't know, man. It's uh, it's real gross when you put it that way because it, it is true. It, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be this big of business, right? Like, I understand I'm with you. Like, people need to be paid for what they do, and uh, they need to be paid okay to do it, like referees and coaches and all this stuff. But, man, bigger than the NFL just for kids, it's just, it seems like a lot of exploitation in my mind. It's a numbers game. I mean, you know, 50, 50, more than 50% of kids age 6 to 17. And it's never going to stop, too. Team. There's always going to be kids that are going to be into sports. So it's a model that will never go away. What's changed is the expectation of it and the year-round and the club emphasis and the specialization part. Because I can remember, like, I played everything. And, and, and if I could go back, I probably did too much. Okay? I played every sport. I played 11 or 12 different sports. I know you don't think 11 or 12 sports exist, but I'm here to tell you they do. In my middle school, I played football. I played baseball. I ran cross country. I played soccer. I wrestled. I played on the basketball team. I I'm forgetting sports that I participated in. I did it all, and I was at school from about seven a.m. to seven p.m. every day. Sometimes I would go to cross country practice, and then I would go to wrestling practice. Uh, you know, I'd go to I'd go to basketball, and then I'd go to wrestling. It was like I was just all over the place because I just wanted to soak up as much as I could, and I loved it. I just loved it, and I and there were a lot of coaches who poured time, effort, and energy into me, and you know what? I think they made like 12 cents an hour because I don't think they were getting paid. I think they were just PE coaches who would stay late, and they would coach, coach the soccer team, or they would stay late, and they would coach the cross-country team or the track team, and I did it all, and I was that kid. And I look back now and I go, eh, maybe some of the uh, overuse uh, of my knee, my three knee surgeries had to do with the fact that I never stopped playing a sport. But I also am grateful for all those people who coached those teams and probably didn't get paid. And I'm also grateful that I didn't sort of grow up in an, at a time when everything costs so much because I, I don't remember there being any cost. If there was, it was nominal to be part of a team. And so, or maybe you had to buy your cleats. Uh, but I know now that the costs are prohibitive, and I know now that once the adults get their hooks into you, they're going to tell you you have to specialize. Now, I've got a story to tell that I think is kind of uh, reflective of, like, when the pivot happened. I got to high school, and Jeff Garcia, who goes on to quarterback in the NFL, is a year older than me in high school. And we had grown up together. I knew him. We'd play on the same youth soccer teams. We'd play on the youth little league teams. Um, I'd spent the night at his house. Uh, his mother and my mother are friends. There's friends to this day. I knew Jeff Garcia. I knew him well. And he was a guy who could who was playing three sports all the way through everything growing up and playing everything as well. And he gets to high school, and what happens? He plays football, and the basketball coach tells him, you have to choose. You can't play football and basketball you have to choose. You can't play for me if you're going to play football. It blows my mind that the varsity high school basketball coach who had a future NFL quarterback on his roster couldn't put his own ego and his self-interest aside to go, hey, I recognize you're a tremendous athlete. I recognize that you're like 6'1", and you put, you know, you're a starting point guard on our basketball team, 
And you might have a future, you know, in football or basketball or who knows, but couldn't put his own self-interest aside. And I think that coach, I mean, it's almost criminal that that coach forced him out of basketball and said, you can't play for me unless you do it year-round. And and I it was the first time I ever saw or heard anybody do that, and I just shook my head at it and thought, that is ridiculous. And I look back now and I go, gosh, we have a lot of coaches now who are telling kids, you need to do this year round. And that's the thing is when we were in school, it's they did it in high school because that happened to me as well. I remember I was it was summer baseball, summer basketball, and you know we had way more baseball games than basketball games, and so I was playing both, and we made out a schedule of you know when I'm going to play basketball, when I'm going to play baseball. Then all of a sudden the baseball coach is like, hey, you know what? Uh, he put me at shortstop. And he goes, if you want to stay shortstop, you got to play baseball every game. And I said, well, no, we already came up with the schedule, and then I'm going to split it up. And then that's when I kind of knew, like, okay, like I love playing basketball more than I did baseball. But it that was in high school. You're right. Now it's now it's you know they're in fourth grade, and you got to make the choice. We got to go basketball or baseball, whatever it is. And they don't overtly say in fourth grade, you have to do this or you're not going to play. It's more subtle and it's more insidious. The coaches of the club programs, who used to be volunteers or maybe they were paid paid a small stipend to coach the team, have turned this into a full-time job. And they are telling the kids, hey, come be part of my club. And, oh, by the way, we've got the A team, and then we've got a B team that's just going to practice, you know, that is really uh, comprised of players who, you know, maybe need some developmental work. And then, but you're all going to pay the same amount of money. And then, oh, by the way, you need private lessons. So for $28 an hour, I'll take two or three of you on a side. I'll make, you know, almost 100 bucks an hour, and uh, I'll get you in a gym privately, and we'll drill and drill and drill. And, and the message to the kids and to the parents is, if you don't do this year-round, and if you don't get the extra lessons, and if you don't belong to the right club or the right team, and you're not working with the right coach, oh, you're not gonna you're gonna fall behind. And so the message isn't, hey, if in fourth and fifth grade, if you don't specialize, you can't be on the team. The message is, yeah, you can be here, but those kids that are competing against you, you know, they're doing the extra work. And really, if you want to take this seriously, you do the extra work. And it's it's much more insidious. There should be limits on when you can play. And how often you could play, and there should be, you know, I, I don't like that some adults have turned this into their profession. They become experts when they, you know, I look back and I you start to do a little bit of digging around about some of the people who are coaching the clubs and coaching the teams. They don't have the expertise to do it. You know, what qualifies them to be that person? Oh, they dreamed up the club and they made a website? Oh, great. You know, it doesn't make you a great coach. And and uh, it's just invasive. I think it's ruined it. I think it's spoiled it. I think it's uh, it's a crying shame. And I think, you know, if you're a club coach who has a good heart and you're in it for the right reasons, you know who you are. But if you're a club coach who is a glorified wannabe coach who is there going, hey, I hated my job and so I've turned this basketball thing or baseball thing or volleyball thing into a year-round job for myself, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I think that whole industry is infected, and I and I really applaud the pro athletes who come on this show and go on other shows and say, hey, I played three sports, or I played two sports. I didn't let some grown-up whose who's, uh, career ceiling was coaching a club team, 
I didn't let some grown up tell me that I couldn't do it. And and you know, I'm looking talking now at college athletes at Oregon and Oregon State and other places who who can step forth and go, "Hey, I played." You know, great example, there's a volleyball player at Oregon named Daly McClellan, who's a hell of a player, hell of a volleyball player, dominated the club scene growing up here in in Oregon. I her, she played on the same team as my daughter when they were 12. Daly went and played basketball in 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 the off season. She created an off season for herself. She could have got sucked up into the idea that she had to specialize and be with only one club. Nope, she bounced around to her parents' credit. They had her playing basketball. She sometimes missed a volleyball practice or a match cuz she had a basketball game. Good for her. Parents got it. She made it anyway. Scholarship Full ride to Oregon. Those stories are out there, and they're out there in greater abundance than, you know, the uh, very rarely, if at all, have I ever had anybody on the show who said, I really benefited from not doing anything else but playing baseball year round. I played 600 games. It was great for me to not do anything but think about. Nobody comes on the show and says that. No. Tom Glavin comes on the show and he talks about the fact that he went and played hockey. And Dominican Sue comes on the show and says, I played soccer. Alex Molden, who played in the NFL, comes on and he says, no, 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 I played other things. And his kids, I watch the Molden kids, they're playing all kinds of sports. It's the right thing to do. Let your kids be kids. Leave it here. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Baltimore. Hey, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but... If you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.